0: are like, have kids, it's wonderful, and then you get the reality of what having children is really like, right, all that fun stuff, you see great family pictures, and then the reality sets in after you have a couple kids, Um, wonderful, right, or maybe you want to build a snowman with your kids, and this is what you think you're going to build, but it turns out to be something like that, Um, that's the story of my life growing up with kids, and so, or maybe you have a New Year's resolution, I'm going to be organized with everything in my life, and they may last for a little bit. But then, you know, it turns into reality. And so, all these different things can be reality versus, uh, you know, actual reality or expectation versus actual reality can be completely different things. And so, and I really think that, like, in a sense, this is what sin can be. Because sin can really advertise something can be wonderful and something great, something long-lasting. But in reality, it's very, very different. It's a false. Sin is a very good false advertiser. And sin, really, I feel like, you know, the expectations of sin, and in a general sense, any sin, kind of don't match the reality of how it's going to work out for us. And so that's kind of what it is. So sin, the definition of sin is really going your own way instead of God's way, and it never really works out very well for us at all. So sin is a great false advertiser, unfortunately. And so this is a, I believe this very, this is a, let's see, let's go back. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And I think that is true for what we're talking about today, but I think it's true for so many other sins in our life. It definitely, definitely robs us of of time. It robs, robs us of people in our lives. It definitely wastes our time. It wastes our energy. It could waste our life, and it could cost us way more than what we're willing to give. And so I think that's really what sin ends up doing, unfortunately. And so, sin is much deeper than just breaking God's rules. Sin is really a destructive pattern of choices that can very easily ruin our lives. And that's exactly what sin does to us, unfortunately. It'd be fun. Don't get me wrong. Sin can be really great and fun for a while. We can think it's the greatest thing that ever happened to us. But in reality, it's not going to last. It's not going to bring us that fulfillment that we're looking for. And so long-term, the opposite of what happens is our expectations of sin. The opposite is what we get when we get reality. And so we've been talking about all these different things, all these different sins um, in the last couple weeks. And so this is not an exhaustive list of sins. Obviously, there's so many more sins than just this. Um, And this is definitely… These are kind of the sins that are just kind of the core, the ones that really will destroy our lives, maybe the most. Um, but there's all sin, obviously, is is not great if you're not following God's way. And so today. We're going to talk about this fun topic, about lust, and so here's my disclaimer, okay? If you've got young kids in here, the things that we're talking about, it's, this is a very PG-13 sermon, let me put it that way. Um, so if your kids are listening, you may have to answer a lot of really fun questions when you get home today. Um, so that's my disclaimer for all of you, um, because lust is definitely an interesting topic to talk about, and so, so that's what we're talking about here with lust, and so... None of, these, none of these sins, we're not looking for moral perfection, right, in these sins. We're looking for basically to be able to, suffer, be able to have, you know, we, we basically, you know, struggle with all of these. But at the same time, the spoiler alert, right, is that God is the one that gives us power over these things. God is the one. We can't do it by ourselves with any of these sins, especially, I feel like, when it comes to lust. And so we can't do it all by ourselves. So we talked about greed, we talked about pride, so today we're talking about lust. And you can really lust after a lot of things, right? You can talk about lust for money, you could talk lust about possessions, you could have lust for power, you can have lust for all these different things. But I think when people use the word lust, mostly what we think about is we think about sexual lust. We think about sexual desire. We think about all those different things. And so the dictionary defines lust as an intense and unbridled sexual desire. An intense and unbridled sexual desire is kind of the definition of what was kind of our starting point. And this is really our first point, is that lust is a false pathway to sexual fulfillment, turning a good thing into a selfish thing. So lust is really, people use lust as a shortcut really for fulfillment, but it doesn't really get you to the place that you want to be. It doesn't fulfill you long term. And so you think you're going to be sexually fulfilled when you act out on lust, but really, honestly, we never will be. It never will fulfill us. Lust will never fulfill us. We've been kind of, uh, if you've been here, we've been kind of quoting this book. uh, Graham Tomlin in the Seven Deadly Sins in his book, he says, With lust, the primary motive is to get, and although there may be some temporary relief, the end result is just more frustration. And the reason that is is because lust is a very selfish thing. It's all about me. It's all about meeting my needs. But he goes on to say in the book, with good sex, we aim first and foremost to give, and we end up receiving as well. So with good sex, in marriage, what it is, is it's something where it's a give and take. You know, you're giving and you're receiving. And the whole point is it's outward looking, not inward looking. But lust, on the other hand, is something where you're just out there to get and to take, and it never lasts very long, and it's not fulfilling, and it destroys relationships. So have you guys ever wondered this? Have you ever wondered, like, like Have you ever seen this stigma that Christianity, I think, especially kind of puts around sex and lust? You know, it's this almost like, sex is bad, sex is ugly, don't do this this really crazy, ugly, sexual thing until you're married, then enjoy it. You know, it's just like, what? It's like tiki-talking out of both mouths, you know? It's just like, you know, don't do that ugly, gross thing until you're married, you know? And it's just like, and then it's like, why do I want to get married? That sounds ugly and gross. But actually, it's wonderful. And so, you know, people say Jesus never talked about sex. The Bible doesn't talk about it, but it totally does. The Bible totally does. And so, there's actually one whole book of the Bible, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, that talks very graphically about sex. Don't go home and read it unless you're married. <laughs> like it's, it talks very graphically about it, and it's a great book. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. And so I just want to make sure that we understand that we you shouldn't maybe you had that shame or that guilt or that whole thing growing up, but you know what, sex can be a wonderful thing in the context of where it's not in lust in a lustful thing. And so, so we're gonna jump into. Gen- the very, very first book of the Bible. This is Genesis 1. God said, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. In other words, God is saying, You know what? Have sex, have kids. Like God is saying, This is a blessing. This is a good, wonderful thing, you know? God didn't have to make sex a blessing. He could have made it joyous. He could have made it totally joyless. He could have made it totally boring. He could have just made it just. Really ugly and bad and wrong, but he didn't, you know. God said sex is great and designed to be good. Dare I say, God designed sex to feel good. And I think that's a wonderful gift and a blessing that God has given to us, really, which is a great thing. And Jesus went on to say this in the New Testament. He said that this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and these two are united into one. Another, another version says one flesh, right, which basically means it's referring to sexual intimacy. So what we know about sex is that God created it to be a blessing. God created it to be great. God created it to be amazing between two people that are committed to the relationship and love each other. And so we have to, but we have to remember that the world has kind of twisted it and abused it. And that's what sin kind of does. Remember, sin takes good things and perverts them and twists them into something ugly and bad. But lust is a sin because it turns what should be a selfless thing into a selfish thing. That's why lust is a sin, because it makes it selfish. That's why why lust even is a sin at all. And so when we're talking about, you know, lust being my priority is me, it's all about me, it's all about my needs, the opposite of sex, of what sex was intended to be, which is to be giving and receiving and selfless. That's what lust is, that's what sex is turned into. That's how lust turns sex into something that's a sin. And so, it's not, it's, 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 it's objectifying someone for your own sexual pleasure, basically, or own selfish pleasure. And so, unfortunately, this may sound really, really weird, but this can happen in marriage. You know, if you've been married for a long time and you're looking at your spouse and you're just objectifying them just for your own needs that could, lust can slip into marriages as well. And so unfortunately we can do that. And so I, I am like super physically attracted to my wife. Like she is the hottest woman on this planet, you know, and she's great. She's wonderful. And, but if I just like, just look at her as just only just not as a person, not as my wife, but as just an object to meet my needs, I'm sinning. Like that's lust. And unfortunately, my wife only thinks I'm sexy when I'm vacuuming or I'm doing the dishes. But that's okay. You know, I can live with that. <laughs> totally okay. And so, so that's kind of the difference we see. And so I want you to think about this. What's the line between lust and attraction? Like, where does that line get across, you know, between attraction to someone or lust? You know, where do you cross that line? And so we're going to look at one of the most famous stories about lust in the Old Testament. This is uh, 2 Samuel, story about David. Late one afternoon after the midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, he sent someone to find out who she was, and he, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. So if you're reading this story, you, I mean, this story can be a whole nother sermon, but like if you read this whole story, you can see that David messed up really bad, like really bad, and it all started with lust. And you know what? If you think about this story, even this just first part of the story, where did lust come in? Like, where did lust start? Like, where did lust go wrong at this point? And really, I think it's when he saw her and he chose not to look away. That's where I think lust came in, is when he saw her, chose not to look away, then he actually did something about it. Lust turned into action, unfortunately, in this story. And so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where lust came in. And I think Bathsheba was, you know, for him to look at Bathsheba and then think that she's beautiful, there's nothing wrong with that. But basically what happened was he let lust get a hold of his life, and it totally took him down a very, very bad road. And so that's what, it, this, is, this is the lustful response. He chose to have a Turn a natural response into a lustful response and act on it. I had a friend in college, he would say this. He'd say, you know what? It's the second look that's always gonna get you. It's the second look that's gonna get you in trouble. And then he'd say, that's why you make the first look really, really long. I'm like, dude, there is something wrong with you. Like, you have issues, you know? And so, the difference between lust and attraction literally can be five seconds. Where you see someone, you find them attractive, but then you have a choice To turn and walk away, not dwell on it, or to keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, and let your mind just go crazy. That's the choice we have, maybe every day. To find someone naturally attractive is not wrong, but to choose to dwell on it and let lustful thoughts go into your head long-term, that is wrong. And so that's where lust can come in, and that's where lust can totally just infest our our soul and our spirit and our everything within us if we choose to dwell on it. I want all of you, if you're married right now, especially husbands, turn to your wife and say, there's no one more attractive in this world than you. (laughs) Thank you. I can see you doing that. (laughs) And so, so that's important. But here's our next point. It says that lust has bigger impact than we think physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. So David saw Bathsheba. He lusted after her. He sent his servants to go get her, bring her to the palace. He slept with her, and she even became pregnant. And so now he had a problem, right? Now his lust has gotten this woman pregnant. So what does he do? He goes and finds out who her husband is, brings him home from war. He's fighting for David, by the way. Brings him home from war and has this big feast for him and says, go home, sleep with your wife, because maybe if he sleeps with his wife, maybe, you know, he thinks he's the one that got her pregnant. Go home, sleep with your wife, enjoy your time home. What does this guy do? This guy's full of integrity. He refuses to sleep with his wife because he realizes that all of his buddies are still on the front lines, sleeping on the ground in tents, and he's at home with his wife, and so he doesn't want to take that for granted. So, he doesn't sleep with her. So, what does David do? He takes it even further. He takes them back to war, tells his commander to put him on the front lines, and then tells the commander to pull everybody back so that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, ends up getting killed. So, he ends up murdering somebody, and where did it all start with? It started with lust. And so you can see how he went down a really bad and a really, really dark road at this point in his life. He was, first he was lusting, then he was committing adultery, then he was lying, then he was deceiving, then he was scheming. And all this finally ended up with an innocent man being murdered. And so you can see how this this is not just a physical act, right? It affected people's lives. It's more, it's more than just a physical issue. It's an emotional issue. it's a spiritual issue. It's all of these different things. and it's a crazy how it does that. I tell young people all the time, "You know what? The more physical you are with your boyfriend or girlfriend." the more emotional you're going to be attached to them. Because sex is not just a physical thing. It's an emotional thing. And what happens is these young people end up getting too far physically, and then they end up getting attached to someone that they probably shouldn't, and it makes it much more difficult to break up with that person when they probably should. And this is why I believe that sex should be saved for a committed marriage with someone because there's so much more than just physical going on. There's emotional, there's spiritual, there's all these different things that are included in sex. And so Jesus said, took it one step further, actually, and he said, But I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So is Jesus literally saying, like, gouge out your eyes if you have lust? Like, No. But basically what he's saying is a lot of teachers back there use exaggeration to make sure that people realize that this was a serious issue and a serious point. And so is lust worse than any other sin? No. But if we, don't let, if we don't take care of lust and we just kind of let it dwell and we kind of let it sit and we let it simmer, is it going to turn into a big problem? Yes. And so this is what we're talking about. And at this point, Jesus' is making is that it is better to sacrifice now Then suffer worse later. That's Jesus' point. And the more we allow lust to take hold of our lives, the more powerful it is actually going to become. And so when we're looking at like the 21st century, right, when we're looking at out here and now, I'm going to give you some statistics for you. So unfortunately, one of the biggest instigators of lust is pornography, which is a hundred billion dollar industry a year, and it says, as, May, as of May 221, porn sites received more website traffic in the U.S. than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, LinkedIn, all those things combined. In 2019, the equivalent of nearly 6,650 centuries of porn was consumed on one of the world's largest porn sites. The average age of when a child sees porn is 11 years old, which is before junior high. And a third of those addicted to pornography are women. So this is not just a male problem. This is a female-male problem. So if we're really, it's really something that affects us all really directly or indirectly, unfortunately. So when young people ask me like, okay, well how far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend? I usually use this like illustration of like running downhill. If you're running downhill and you're like, all of a sudden in the middle, just say, oh, I wanna stop can you stop? (laughs) You know, you just keep that momentum, keeps you running downhill. And so that's the wrong question to say, how far can I go? The right question is, how can I stay safe? How can I keep my partner safe? How can I respect them? How can I be selfless instead of selfish? All those different things. And so lust is a slippery slope. We all tell ourselves, like, you know, this is the last time I'm going to click on that image. This is the last time I'm going to objectify that person's body. I'm not going to do it after this, you know. This is the last time I'm going to, like, entertain those thoughts or go to that club. This is the last time I'm going to do it. But it just ends up continuing, continuing. No matter what we tell ourselves. And so good intentions pave the way to destruction, unfortunately. If you're not starving lust, you're really feeding it. There's like no neutral ground at this point. And so, because it's a very, very powerful thing, and there's a lot that we can, there's a lot that we there's a lot that we can do to get bad in our lives, really. So I'll give you a few things. We can eliminate you know, a lot of sources of temptation. We can block channels and websites and apps and delete those things from our social media. We may we maybe get rid of toxic people in our life and be done, you know, and, and don't go Don't, like, be alone with your boyfriend and girlfriend for a long period of time, you know. Like, don't stay up late with them. There's all these different little things that we can do. There's, there we can clear and renew our mind every day, spend time reading the Bible and praying, talking with Christian friends about, you know, godly things. All those things are good. And if we do this, we can kind of retrain our mind. You know, if you've got some triggers that throw you into lust, whether it's things that you look at or maybe just stress or whatever, you know, we can retrain those things where we can decide to instead, when we get tempted, go, you know, go out and go to the gym with some friends. Go for a run or walk. Listen to music. Like, do those things where you distract your mind. Turn your your electronics off, you know. Have it call your accountability partner or get an accountability partner, you know, that sort of thing. And so we can do all those different things instead of actually something lust. you know. When I was a teen, I had to wait for the swimsuit, you know, the swimsuit Sports Illustrated issue to come out, you know, for me to see any kind of like half-naked girl. You know, it's very different today, right? Today, young people like, you know, have it at the, you know, have it basically at the palm of their hands, unfortunately, and they could see bad, horrible pictures, you know, at any moment. And a lot of people do, very quickly. And then what happens? Minutes turns into hours, hours turn into a lot longer than that, and then it ends up turning into an addiction. And so that's unfortunately what happens. I have a lot of coworkers who get on Tinder and really just to hook up with random people. But if you were on Tinder and you don't want to hook up with someone, you have to tell them fairly early in the date that you're just actually trying to get to know them and not hook up with them. Like, how sad is that, right? Have you ever heard anyone say this this horrible phrase, well, you know, you got to drive the car, you got to test drive the car to see if you like it. It's just like, really? Like that is basing your whole relationship on sex, which it shouldn't be. That's just lust. That's being very selfish. And then there's this whole thing about like, I don't know if you guys know what thirst traps are, but basically it's the sexy selfies that people take and then they people get them, and that just sucks them in, and there's this whole big website called OnlyFans where you basically can just kind of, in a little personal way, get to know someone that you're looking at, and that person can, like, send you pictures or videos, and there's a lot of girls that say, well, it's great because I can send sexy pictures and videos of myself to these men, and I never have to meet them, and it pays for my whole way to go to college because these men are just giving me money to look at my body. And it's just like, man, this is where we've come through. This is what we come to in life. You know, this is how lustful our world is, unfortunately. And so that's how powerful and big lust is. And so lust is really, in really any sin in, in all areas of our lives, you know, it, it, it's basically, it affects us in everything, not just in our mind, but in our body and our emotions and spiritually and all those different things. So we need to be healed in multiple ways. And so, it says, this, in First Thessalonians, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to have victory over the last battle, we need to realize that it affects every error of our lives, and we can't minimize it, but we need to confess it. And so, this is our last point here, Lust feeds on secrecy and starves in transparency. I think we overestimate our ability to control what we do with our lives. We overestimate like the, how we can be control in our behavior sometimes. So if you don't believe me, think about the last time you went on a diet. You know, how hard was that? Think about, you know, try going on a gym plan or something like that. You know, uh, Try having a daily workout plan. Try stopping watching your favorite show. You know, try stopping watching Netflix or Hulu or whatever for a long period of time and see, let me know how that goes for you. You know, try just to cut out all social media. That would be really hard for probably a lot of you. And so when we think about how we have all this control in our lives, sometimes we really, really don't. And we may work for a while, but we're going to try to ultimately fail, unfortunately. And so that's what makes it really, really hard to stop. And so what I feel like we have to do is we have to really come to the point of confession. That's what we really, really have to do. And so confession really is what is, is, is kind of like, we can talk about a lot of things, but confession is all about not denying the problem, but realizing you're having the problem and realize actually go to people for help in your life. And so confession is the most probably the thing that's going to probably work the best, to be honest. And so this is what this says. In Luke it says, uh, but if we confess our sins, he is, if he confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and do confess and do our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And so this is confession to God, right? This is what we call confession to God. But there's two types of, two, two, two types of confession, really. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And so it's wonderful to confess to God. Like, that's probably the most important thing. But we also need to, we can't stop there. Like, we need to confess to others. Because in confessing to others, it brings it out in the open and you could actually get help with whatever sin problem that you have, whether it be lust or whether it be something else. So it's important to admit it. It's important to admit it to somebody else is what is really important to do. So, God is able and faithful to forgive us no matter what our sin problem is. And the only way to get that sin problem to take care of is to realize that God has really given everything in his heart and His in his... In his being for you. I mean, God came to the earth. God came to die for you. God came to die for whatever sin problem that you have. God came and basically took our place on the cross and didn't deserve it like we do, but actually died and then rose again so that we can have healing and even eternal life in heaven. That's what God did for us. And so, if you're keeping any kind of sin, whether lust or anything to yourself, you're really not trusting in Him to be able to heal you, and you're not getting that healing. So if you're hiding it from your family and friends or people that care about you most, you know what I promise? The guilt and shame that you may be feeling right now of keeping it hidden is far worse than the pain that you might feel by confessing to somebody else because that's going to be that confession is going to put you on the road to that healing. And so this is our last verse. It says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. So the longer that we hide this from God, the harder it's going to be to confess. And the longer you go without freedom and healing. So if I'm speaking to you today, this should be your day. Like, don't wait any longer. Because if we take this and give it to God, we're going to feel that forgiveness. We're going to feel that mercy. We're going to feel that healing. God is going to give you strength. God is going to give you people and we can give you other resources to be able to bring to bring able to help you have victory over this consistent victory. And so I pray that you would have courage to open up to those closest to you to talk about whatever sin problem you have. And if anybody ever confesses to you Even if it's something like this, I know there's a lot more shame and guilt and stuff poured on people, unfortunately, you know, especially when it comes to pornography. You know, people don't have that shame and guilt when it comes to pride or greed. But for some reason, we like pour that on people. We put that shame on people for this particular sin. But if somebody ever confesses to you, please be gracious and have mercy and love that person because it probably took them a lot of guts for them to confess it in the first place. And so we need to be Christ-like in that sense. And so Before we finish today, I want to let you know that there's nothing that God can't handle. There's nothing that you've done that can make God love you any less, and there's nothing that we can do to make God love you any more. Like, God loves you no matter what. No matter what you've done or doing, no matter what's been done to you, God loves you no matter what. And so I want to let you know that after the service, there'll be people up here that would love to talk with you, love to pray with you, love to help you with whatever you need. But let's pray now. Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God of forgiveness, God. You're a God of healing. You're a God that restores us. You're a God that God gives us, God, everything that we need at the moment. And, Lord, I'm glad that you're a God of, of second, third, fourth choices, chances, God. You give us chance after chance because you really want us to be able to, just, God, to know you, God, to have a relationship with you. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you that you died for us to be able to give us that chance. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to see what needs to change in our lives and you would give us the courage to change those things. And I thank you that there's other people around us that love us, God, that you've given us as a gift, God, to be able to help us on that journey. And I pray that we would take the first step of that journey to be able to find healing in you. We thank you, God. We thank you for being here. We thank you for being part of our lives. We thank you for being the ultimate healer of everything, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.